As we begin this morning, I have to tell you, my heart is really full. We absolutely were blessed last night. Uh, it was, if you had the opportunity to be here, you were blessed as well. And a great uh, deal of fellowship and worship, and uh, what a blessing it was to be a part of it as a congregation to be able to support that and facilitate that is a blessing. God was truly honored, and it was a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be here this morning. I ask that uh, you turn your attention to the handout. Uh, this will be the last lesson in this series, The Will of God. Uh, and then also stay in First Thessalonians. I'm going to be reading a passage out of First Thessalonians chapter 5. I will tell you, Johnny Sokola is going to be with us next week. He's going to take Hannah's role. And if you know Johnny, you're going to be blessed. And Hannah, thank you so much this morning. What a blessing uh, you are too, is, well, to this congregation. So Johnny will be uh, here next week. Jack Hooker, I have to secure the date, but we get, we're working on that. He'll be here. Uh, well, he'll be here. I, I'll have that secured by Monday. And then I believe it's December 4th, Justin Todd Harrod will be here. And so we have some just great opportunities to uh, witness the gifts of godly individuals as they help us lead us and our prayer and our service and our worship to God. But those are the things to look forward to. If you, if you don't know who Jay Cooker is or Justin Todd Herod, man, Google him and you'll be blessed and, and, uh, and we will be blessed as well. God will be glorified. So, the will of God. And when I started this, I, just very, as a quick recap, uh, you know, there's two things that are inevitable. Death is inevitable. We are going to physically die. The will of God is inevitable. Whether we accept, receive, or believe that or not, and just as Jesus taught us to pray on the Sermon on the Mount, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It is inevitable, and it is. Uh, the source of all of our conflict, whether we acknowledge it or not, the source of all of our conflict is our will versus God's will. It just is. Uh, God loves us so much. The scripture says he's even jealous of us for us, that if you want to, you can live in your will, and it will always, always ultimately result in something less, something terribly less. But that's the source of all of our conflict. The thing that we should desire above all else, our desires, you know, the scripture says the desires of our eyes cannot be fulfilled. But if our heart desires above all else the will of God, man, that's the, the God, the life uh, intended for us, the life that God intended for us to have. So how does it happen? Well, we've got those verses. And so uh, there is a scriptural, spiritual application of all the statements. The source of all my conflict, my desire should be uh, above all else, uh, how that happens. And then that's where this series has been. And we started out in Romans chapter 12. And the, really, the first thing is present yourself. Every single day, each of us gets up and we present ourselves. We present ourselves to something Someone, uh, we do, whether it's at work, just whatever our calling is or where we're at in life, we're always presenting ourselves. And so uh, he gives us what that should look like. Become obedient slaves of Christ. Not only do we present ourselves to someone according to our will or God's will, but we also are obedient to someone. Now, I don't know that I mentioned this, but we can be obedient to rebellion. Think about that. The very opposite of obedience is rebellion. And when you look at the, the conflict and uh, the reality of so many of 
our lives and maybe at different times in our lives, um, that conflict as we're living according to our will and not God's will, um, is we're obedient to rebellion. We're obedient to rebellion. And yet we've been called to be obedient slaves of Christ. There's one true reality, Philippians 2. And that reality is understanding that you and I have been called to have the attitude of Christ. That's who we've been called. Attitude is a choice. There's a result in that. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. We're supposed to be filled with the knowledge of God. Again, you go down the list. Uh, present yourself, become obedient, live under the one true reality, the attitude of Christ. Uh, we're supposed to hear, learn, and be filled, and then filled with that whole Colossians passage with the knowledge of God. That's your choice. You and I, are, we choose to, we're like an empty cup, a vessel every day, and we choose, not only are we empty, but we choose how, what and how and we're going to fill that empty cup, that space that is us. And we've been called to, to be filled with the knowledge of God. And so today, chapter 5, and I have to tell you, I, for me personally, um, this, the, the implications to this are absolutely huge, but not they are to you. They were to the first century church. Paul just read that, that opening statement in the Thessalonians, that, uh, this very first letter that Paul wrote to them. Uh, I want to return your attention to that, just verse 2 uh, and 3 and 4. So in every introductory statement that Paul makes in all of his letters, at all of them, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, he makes what is called a thesis statement in the opening statements that then becomes the rest of the letter is dealing with that introductory statement, the thesis statement that is in that introductory statement. For the Thessalonians, and if you read this, the rest of this letter, and you refer back to verses 2, 3, and 4, the whole letter is based upon this point, this foundation, this thesis. thesis. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. That's a pretty consistent with his opening statement. Here's the thesis, and then he proves it. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. This is about the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Everything that he's going to write to the Thessalonians now is going to be proving Things about work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And then this wonderful statement, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. So the book of Thessalonians, this letter, is he's going to prove to Christians that he loves. And there's going to be some real heavy theology doctrine in here. He's going to prove this, the things that need to be Constantly bearing in mind work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now, this could be true for you and I. And so then in chapter 5, this is the culmination of it, Christian conduct. So this morning, I have to tell you, this is a message that I've been really chomping at the bit to preach um, because of the implications of it that have to do again with work of faith, labor and love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. 
So he's written the letter, lots of theology about people who died in Christ and the day of the Lord and all the sanctification and love of Christ. So, but here it is, this section of scripture, this is so personal for you and I in our faith and our labor and our steadfastness in Christ. And theologians have called this a a statement about, um, it's a picture of Christian conduct, the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Hear these words, church. Verse 12, he's building. And I want to ask you to do something. I want you to check yourself. I want you to say, okay, verse 12 and 13. Uh, 10 being really good, one being not so good. My conduct, having to do with my faith and labor and steadfastness in Christ through, through the Lord, being chosen of God, just check yourself. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So number one, this is just a list building to a a point that if you're reading this list about Christian conduct, again, faith, labor, steadfastness in Christ, that you're going to be challenged. And the things that may challenge you may be different for me or each and every one of us. So I, let me just say as a caveat, go to 1 Timothy 5. We don't do this enough, and we should, uh, if you believe in spiritual warfare and what's taking place in the body of Christ. So Paul also writing, an old preacher to a young preacher, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders who ru- rule well, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work Hard at preaching and teaching. Read that again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You should also read, if you're taking notes, Hebrews 13, 7. I could go throughout just the scriptures, Old and New Testament. Uh, but so back to this First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5. But again, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. This is your elders, the shepherds, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of your work, live in peace with one another. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said, you better be real careful if you bring an accusation, you believe in spiritual warfare with your leaders. Now, just as we start this, I'm just going to do something. I don't know, because God is just adding. He's adding to our numbers, and we've come off this pandemic year, and uh, you know, it's hardly a week that goes by that somebody new isn't here We've got so many folks that are just, and we're kind of stuck out here by ourselves. And, and so uh, it's a blessing to see that. The scripture says God adds. And so in God's biblical structure of biblical authority for the church that Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'm going to build a church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You think of spiritual warfare. You think of all the letters that Paul wrote. Paul wrote the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Thessalonians. He instructed young preachers. Um, Jesus addressed the seven churches of Asia Minor. And so when you go to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost and this great 
Pentecostal uh, Old Testament fulfilled scripture moment happens. The church is born according to the will of Christ. Uh, and you get to the end of that chapter, something wonderful happens. It says that they had all things in common. They met regularly. They broke bread together. They had all things in common. And it's this wonderful picture of the first church, the body of Christ being established on the day of Pentecost, moving forward in the days that uh, then followed, they had all things in common. But you get to the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, and they're fighting over which widows get fed first. And then... Uh, everything then, all those letters, the Corinthians, they were a mess. The Galatians had problems. The Ephesians had problems. The Philippians had problems. They just had problems. Read again Jesus' statement to the seven churches in Asia Minor, chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the book of Revelation. The New Testament church had trouble. Gandhi said, when asked about Christ, is that I don't have a problem with your Christ. It's that bloody thing he drags behind him called the church. And so the church has always kind of, not oh, not kind of, has just, we've been a mess. And it's spiritual warfare. And so what does that have to do with this opening statement about Christian conduct? The church that Christ established, he also established authority and leadership. And you want evidence of spiritual warfare, you see the malignment of elders, church leadership. The audacity and the ungodly hearts that would do that. That's what it is. And I don't know where you would rate those. I have seen, and I'm always thankful for those folks that understand what it is to be in submission. Not just to God, but to one another. Husbands and wives, church members to leadership. Honoring and respecting God. And he starts here. Appreciate those. Appreciate those. Esteem them very highly. Um, and for those of you that are here, and it's, you just see, I can say I've been doing this for three decades. And uh, the four men, that those individuals that God has given us to lead and shepherd us, they are of the highest esteem. And why, why can I say that? Number one, I'm with them. I hear their hearts. And no matter... What's going on? They rely heavily first on their relationship with God through the word of God. What? There are men who love the word of God. And because they love the word of God, they do they want to honor God. And it's hard. So many things that take place in the life and the body of a church that you would never know of. But I've watched it and I've seen it. Three decades, not with just these men, but they honor God and they, because they, honor, they love his word and they love him because they love him, they love his word and they love his word because they love him. And, and, and they're men of prayer. And we're very fortunate. You are fortunate to have those kind of individuals leading you. So that was number one, Christian conduct. Ten being good, one being not so good. Uh, are you appreciating those who diligently labor among you? Uh, or do you esteem them very highly in love? Do you? Next thing, live in peace with one another. See, you can't do one without the other. Whenever there's a conflict in the body of Christ and there's, there's whatever that section or group or 
and they're not in peace with one another, I can assure you, number one's not being accomplished, so the conflict in the nature of spiritual war is taking place. Discord in any church is always at the center of that someone who is not appreciating, esteeming, valuing the biblical leadership that God has ordained. It goes hand in hand. There's no peace in their lives. And then it's like a cancer. But that's the goal. Number three, verse 14. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Now, this is where I had fun with the youth group. And Clay, where's Clay? Where's Clay? Clay? Oh, he's back there. He's, he's working. So I said, so I asked him, what does the word admonish mean? And none of your teenagers knew what admonish meant. I said, you have been admonished within the last 24 hours, I am sure. I know you. I know all of you. You have been admonished. Admonish the unruly. Well, what is unruly? Well, yes, so it's out of control. So I said, Clay, I said, so your mother trains horses, yes. I said, so Clay, if you remember, uh, do, you, do you know what an unruly horse looks like? Well, yeah, I do. So you admonish that unruly horse. You don't have to admonish a ruly horse, do you? And so that admonish means, though, that something's in that horse, that child, that adult, that whoever, is where there's unruliness. There's no, there's, they refuse to be ruled. And so the admonishment comes from, I'm going to redirect you because your direction, it is, has to do with direction. You're living an unruly life, and now I'm going to redirect you. And so we have been taught, and we have been told throughout Scripture to admonish the unruly. Well, I like to admonish the unruly. I do not like to be admonished when I'm unruly. But I like it. We all like that. Brothers and sisters, I have seen, I have seen Hudson and Colton and Braden admonish the unruly brother at will, like a fast shooting, six shooting pistol. Boom, boom, you need, you need to, you know, just do it. Zane, Grace, I've seen it. We like to admonish the unruly. We do not like to be admonished when we're unruly, but it's there. So I don't know where you would rate yourself, okay? Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, that's a great faint-hearted. Have you ever seen, I was doing a wedding, uh, uh, and it was, so we're up there, and, and uh, we're here, and, uh, and the guy's there, and the beautiful bride comes down, she's, who gives this uh, bride in marriage, her mother and I, and, he's, and we're here. And I knew the young man, he'd been in the youth group, and now he's in his 20s, and he's a college baseball player, but he's just a great guy. And I saw him, and I could just tell, and he fainted. I mean, he flat fainted. He just fainted. And the guy, his best friend, he grabbed him, and I helped grab him, but he fainted. Have you ever seen anybody faint? He was just, the moment was so, now that's a picture, but the church every Sunday morning is full of faint-hearted people. Now, we're not falling out fainting, but we are fainting. Our heart is heavy. We're fainting. And we put our best smile on and we come. And our Christian conduct says concerning our faith and our labor and our steadfastness in Christ that we should be evident. We should know the faint of heart. And we should be in prayer for them and then we should be intervening for them and, and uh, the faint-hearted. It says we are to encourage the faint-hearted. 
when you come in here and when you leave here in your relationship, how much of your life in the body of Christ having to do with your faith, labor, and steadfastness in Christ is spent encouraging? And by the way, it's very easy to encourage those that you like. It's very easy to encourage those that aren't faint-hearted. I don't like to be around Debbie Downer. This is encouraged the faint-hearted. Keep going. Where are you at? Ten? Great. One, not so good. Okay? Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. I'm pretty good. So far, I'm thinking I'm pretty good. Man, I appreciate my elders. Uh, I esteem them. I think I do. Probably not as highly in love as I should, you know. Uh, I'm trying my best to live in peace with one another. Admonish the unruly. I like, I can do that. Encourage the faint-hearted. Well, I need to do better at that, okay? Help the weak. Yeah, good. Help the weak. I can do that. Don't need to say a whole lot about that, but again, I probably need to know, and is it just the physically weak? No, it's the spiritually weak. How well do you know your brethren? Now I'm having to use a different standard. And here's a, this is where it gets hard. And by the way, I want to ask you something. Are these suggestions or commandments? The language is imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's not even a goal. It's a commandment. This is commandment language. This is where the church, we could sure use a big old dose of obedience to commandments. Now, Jesus said, you'll obey me if you love me. A lot of people say that we love me. And we live in a culture we don't like to talk about obedience. These are commands. This is imperative language. Here it is. Hmm, I don't know. Be patient with all men. I don't know how good you were doing. I don't know where you're at right here. I do know some patient people. I truly do. I'm not one of them. I look at this and I think, ooh, Rogers. Rogers. And it doesn't say with some men. It says all men. Here's where it really, again. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. I asked the kids, I said, we, we, we're all really good at that. And I had Grace, I think Grace had the best answer. I said, why do we want to repay? I, you did this to me, so I'm going to do that to you. And she goes, because we want fairness. If somebody does that to me, I, it's only fair that you get a big old dose of that. And so we even justify repaying evil for evil. And it says, don't do it, commandment. But always, and this, these are the hard words, all men, be patient with all men, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. I don't want to do that, Scott. I'm sorry. My flesh doesn't want me to always... Seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. I really maybe, I don't mind doing it most of the time. For most of the people I know, there's just people I don't like. This is kind of tough. This is tough. I, you know, I'm reading this and I'm starting to get a little burden on me. Christian conduct that has to do with my labor, my faith, my steadfastness in Christ. So let's just keep reading. Here's, ooh, this one, rejoice always. Rejoice always. You say rejoice sometime? Rejoice. How many of you here rejoice 
Always. Paul wrote the Philippians, and he mentions it almost a half, it was five times. He's in prison for things he's not done. He's old, his health is failing. And he would say, rejoice again, I say in the Lord, rejoice. I've learned the secret to be content in every situation. Don't be concerned about my circumstances, brethren, the gospel's being progressed. Ah, wow. Paul was there. Job was there. He lost everything. Chapter one, he, he lost everything. And he said he fell down and worshiped. And his wife would, what are you doing? He said, should we just only worship? And by the way, re, re, three things, and I can't reveal one just right now, but worship has to do with rejoicing and something else. So rejoice. Joseph, I think Clay picked it up this morning. He thought about Joseph. When Joseph would say, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. Sold into slavery by his brethren, his brothers. 13 years in prison, falsely accused over raping someone that he did not do. And he just encouraged. And he lived by faith and not by sight. And years later, God appointing him, choosing him, and raising him up to, to, to the second in power to only the most powerful ruler of the world. And then with vengeance that he could have repaid evil for evil, he would say to his brothers, pitiful, 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 condemned Guilty brothers, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. He could rejoice in his circumstances. It's hard to rejoice always, isn't it? And if it's not even, then here's the biggie. Pray without ceasing. So when you're a Christian, uh, you're doing this. Christian contact. Okay, I got to live by faith. I got to labor. I got to be steadfast in Christ. I, and I, okay, all right, let's do all this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, whoo, man, I appreciate the elders, esteem them very highly in love, live in peace with one another. And I like stirring up stuff in the church. I mean, I'm one of them backdoor kind of quiet people, you know. And I, this is in our flesh. And I've seen church. We do it. This is what people do. Satan's at work and. The church is crippled, but it is not overcome. The gates of Hades will never prevail. But it happens. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all men. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I'd rather it be mine. Seek after that which is good for one another. All men rejoice and pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Nobody can pray without ceasing. So I don't know where you're at. I would hate to think that you might be the person that says, yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, we have those people in Scripture too. The Pharisees would have said, yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Luke 18, the Pharisee in the temple, yeah, I got it, I got it. I'd even tie it. But those are the, those are the condemned to eternal hell. And I don't say that. Those are the saddest of all people. I have more faith for the homeless drug addict, the criminal in a penitentiary, than I do for the religious elite that who could read something like this and say, yeah, I got it. But if you're like me, and I think like the people in Thessalonia, as they were reading through this letter, I think, and here it is, folks, 
This is what I told the kids. This would be the most important thing that I tell them. I said, this would be the most important thing you ever hear me. And it has to do with God's will. Well, the most important thing. It's the most important thing I need. It's the most important thing you need. Is this, because if you're reading that, you say, well, I can't do that. How can I do that? I, don't, I can't do that. I can try to do that, and I am trying to do that, but I can't do that. But so the beauty of Scripture that is like a two-edged sword that cuts both ways is Scripture provides the answer because you can do this. Of everything on this list, this is the one thing you can do. And it's the secret, the spiritual, not really secret, it's the spiritual evidence and truth of Christian conduct that seems to be unattainable, even in my best efforts. But you can do this. Here's the answer. Scripture provides the perimeters, the foundation, the goals, the commandments, and it always provides the answer. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There is nobody. I've talked several, made this statement in the last, as we've gone through, there is nobody in the world that's responsible for your attitude except you, no one. Only cowards blame their attitude on someone else. There is nobody responsible for the level of gratitude that you have. Nobody except you and me. Nobody. Now, it takes practice. If you go to 1 John the word practice is used over and over and over and over, and it has to do with loving God and loving your brother. And you say you're a Christian, but you hate your brother. You're not a Christian. <laughs> you know, it is love and love and love and love and love. But he uses the word practice, 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 practice. And we're all practicing, just as we're all doing this stuff. Every one of us is presenting ourselves to someone and something. Every one of us is being obedient to someone, maybe rebellion, usually selfishness. We're most obedient to selfishness. Uh, that we, we live in a one true reality, and usually that reality is me, mine, and mine. And then uh, we're here and learning, and we're filling ourselves with something. And we're being filled with something. And in everything, we're given something. But the thing is this. You can practice spiritually and through prayer and through study and commitment and obedience. You can practice being thankful and giving thanks in everything. Because if you say that I believe our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it is inevitable. I am a Christian. I love Jesus Christ. I love God because he first loved me. And I know that he first loved me because he, he gave us his son. The, guilty, the guiltless became guilty for me. He became sin so that I could have my sins forgiven. And that because of that, I've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit and given the gift of eternal life. I believe that really does your life does it is it an example of that are you a pot stirrer are you a gossiper are you a backstabber are you a, but see here's the problem everybody wants to be great 
Everybody. Amen. We all want to be great. I want to, I wanted, yeah. You know what the biggest problem in giving, in everything giving thanks? For this is God's will. Every Christian should say, what's God's will for you? All you have to do is go to this first. I'm going to tell you what God's will for me. God's will for me is that in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, all those things right before there, if you think you can't commit to doing those and being obedient to those things, it's because of a lack of gratitude. And only you and I are in charge of our lack of gratitude. And here's the real problem, guys. You know who the biggest enemy in, 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 in making this the practice of your life? You know what the single, who the single biggest enemy in making this the practice, the spiritual, scriptural practice of your life? Look in the mirror. But I'm going to tell you why. Because our flesh likes to not be thankful. Our flesh likes to be offended. Oh, I just can't believe it. Did you know that guy? Oh, did you know she did? Our flesh likes that. It doesn't want to be thankful. I look at these teenagers. I, I, I nailed them this morning. It comes at an early age, and we live in a culture that certainly... Now, we can be thankful when things are going our way. We can be thankful when our flesh is being filled. The desires of my eyes that can never be fulfilled. We can be momentarily thankful. But the type of gratitude that has to do with esteeming very highly those that, and appreciating those that labor amongst you. Peace with, living in peace and, and encouraging the faint hearty, admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint hearted, helping the weak, being patient with all men, not repaying evil for evil. All those things. Seek after which is good for one another and all men. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. That life it has to have the practice, the dependency, and the obedience, the will, the goal to accomplish the commandment that, you know what, here's how you do it. I don't care what's going to happen. Today is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. I don't care. That's my choice. It's not my flesh's choice. My flesh and the spirit, the demonic spirit, the satanic spirit, that's evident even in the body of Christ. Wants me to moan, whine, complain, feel sorry, conspire against people. Because that's easy. It takes no faith, labor, and steadfastness. Zero faith, labor, and steadfastness in Christ. I will be faithful to me. I will labor for mine. I'll be steadfast in my rights in Aubrey, but not in Christ Jesus through God. I don't know where you're at in this list, but I do know this. If you make the practice of your life in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I hope that as you examine this passage of Scripture, something happens. I hope that you will examine yourself in light of this. 
I hope that as you go through that list that there's a brokenness that happens, is instilled in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit that says, you know what? I would sure like to pray without ceasing. I'd like to have a mind and a spirit that no matter what's happening, I could just be driving down the road. I want to rejoice even in the storms of life because the anchor holds. I I want to, uh, if I see evil, I don't want to repay it and keep me from being the evil. I want to esteem and appreciate the authority, the biblical authority of the body of Christ. I want to be patient with all men. And as you read that, you, you come, you're confronted with the truth. I would just pray that you would pray, increase my gratitude. Father, increase my gratitude. The spearhead of Satan's weapon against you and I and the church is to fill our hearts and our mind and our spirit. And he starts with these kids. He starts with with Braden and Colton and Hudson and all these kids. And then an unhappy wife or a husband in a marriage. Unhappy church members unhappy employees. He wants a spirit in you where there's no gratitude. I have to tell you this, then I'm going to finish. So years ago, I met a guy. He'd been to prison two times. And uh, he was 28 years old when he got out of prison. Um, He had lived in the streets, a gang member, tough guy, hard exterior. And I had had him, he was on the Middleton unit for a couple of years, and I shared this passage we were doing a study in Thessalonians. I need to contact him. I haven't talked to him in probably a dozen years. But he got out of prison, and uh, a lot of pride. Strong, Hispanic man, tough guy. And when he got out of prison, he moved to Brownwood, um, and he had played football for the Brownwood Lions, and he was just a big, strong, Hispanic guy, tough guy. Uh, strong reputation in prison and in the streets. And God just crushed him. God crushed him. And he fell in love with God. He was just always in love with God in prison. So he got out and he couldn't get a job. Well, the parole board got him a job with one of the franchises, the McDonald's franchise in Brownwood. And when I was preaching in Gatesville and different, I would go by and I'd see him. Now let me tell you this, because kids, I told the kids this. I want them to hear this. 28 years old, crushed. You'd go into McDonald's and he'd be cleaning the tables and, you know, or he, whatever. I saw him sweeping the parking lot. Uh, you know, he's just, he was just always, and he had this exuberant, grateful attitude. When he'd come in, he'd say, and I saw him do this once, well, young lady, we're so glad you're here. So you look like a Big Mac kind of girl. Do you want a Big Mac? I bet you like ice cream, don't you? And this is, he's, he's clean. He's nobody. He just, he had to, he was the mercy of the parole and a, a gracious, somebody that owned a McDonald's that he would go to work for him. And, and his, he just was a light in spite of all the circumstances of life. 28 years old, children with multiple women, two-time convicted felon, 
You know, things are, anybody had a reason. Grew up in poverty and violence and a carnal, and anybody had a reason to repay evil for evil. Not be thankful for anything. No, I'm not going to submit to any kind of authority, much less anybody in a church. They're all hypocrites anyway. You can just name the voices and the sounds and all of what you wanted to do. But God got a hold of him and crushed him. And he was always singing. And I, this is for real. And, and so he just did what God said. If I can't trust you with a little, I'm sure not going to trust you with a lot. So he became the best McDonald's floor mopping, table cleaning, people with their kids. People are nasty. They just let their kids throw food everywhere. And you could just be depressed working at McDonald's. And you're already depressed. And you're cleaning up ungrateful people's mess because they got to wait five minutes to get a Happy Meal. Oh, he's so spoiled. And he just had a happy. He owns three McDonald's franchises now. He's a millionaire. Now, I haven't talked to him. It's probably been at least 12 years. And he'll tell you. He will tell you. And I'm so thankful because the word of God never returns void. That a study in a prison unit over 20 years ago. Gosh, I imagine he's 50 years old now. This verse this study in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus changed his life this is true and unfortunately we have a whole group of teenagers today they're just walking around I'm just not very happy things aren't very I hate my teacher and I hate school and my parents Oh, but I'm happy now because I got my way. Oh, that didn't last very long. So it's easy to pick on the teenagers. That's what's wrong with our culture. But I've seen it in grown adults in the body of Christ that have sang Amazing Grace a hundred times, taken the Lord's Supper, begrudgingly come to church because I guess there's some sense of, I could go on. So it's not just teenagers. It's the reason the first century church was arguing over which widows got fed first when they should have just been thankful. We're getting fed, man. Satan's alive, but he is dead in his living. Christ died to be living eternally in you and I, the life. So in everything, give thanks in everything, in everything. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer for this congregation, myself as a preacher, the elders, the leadership of this church, is that you lay it upon, you put it in our heart and our mind and our spirit. That when we look at the things that you've commanded us to do, Father, that you develop in us a spirit of gratitude, no matter the circumstances, Father. And we pray these things in the name of gratitude. We pray these things in the name of thankfulness. We pray these things in the name of joy, in the name of Jesus. Amen.